All right. Would you join me this morning? Uh, Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Uh, I realize there's a chance, and uh, I'm pretty sure uh, from looking, uh, each week, almost each week, we have someone here for the first time, or maybe they've not been here in a long time, and maybe you are not caught up speed with what we've been doing for literally one year, and that's been, we've been going through the book of Romans. Uh, and you may think, well, if you've been doing it for years, surely you're longer, further along than chapter 9. Well, no, we're not. Uh, and those of you that have been here the last two or three times, really, December 3rd uh, and the end of November, and again, December 3rd, and then last week, so we've preached three sermons in Romans 9, if you know anything about Romans, it was a section that I warned you about way back a year ago, because it has such difficult things in it for us to understand and deal with, and it just goes against the grain of human thinking, and sometimes I dreaded getting to that chapter, uh, but the Lord has really been gracious and helped us through that. And today is our last sermon. It'll be the fourth one. Uh, I think we will probably be in chapter 10, somewhere around three sermons on that one. I can't be certain yet. Uh, As a reference, we spent probably 11 or 12 sermons just on chapter 8. So anyway, this morning we finish up Romans 9. Each time I've introduced this chapter, I've done so with a similar introduction. I hope you, those of you that are here each week don't get tired of this because it matters. This is important for us to lay the groundwork. I want you to see what's happening uh, here. This is God's Word. God spoke it through 40 human authors. You'll hear me refer a few times to when it was started and when it was completed. We've had a completed Bible for 2,000 years. What we're reading is the book of Romans in the New Testament. It was pinned down by a man named the Apostle Paul who wrote at least 13 of the 26 books in the New Testament. So that's a little bit of, of the groundwork that's, that's at play this morning. Um, getting a little bit of, we'll see, hopefully the microphone doesn't cause us issues today. What has Paul been talking about in the book of Romans? I'm going to give a very light skimming. You ready? Chapters 1, 2, and 3 is about how all of us, all of us, he breaks it down, but we're all sinners. And we're all deserving God's judgment. Chapter 4 and 5 is how we have escaped God's judgment by what's called justification. It literally is where God... It's not so much that he makes you righteous, he declares a person righteous. That's justification. He declares, by the way, he has the final say. God's the judge. And so when God declares a person righteous, that's it. Case closed. It doesn't matter if someone else says, but I I heard their filthy mouth this week. I know. But I know what they didn't do that they're supposed to do if they're a Christian. I know what they looked at this week and they're sitting in your congregation right now, Jeff. I don't know the details, but God knows. I know they took something or they lied or they're the biggest gossip in town. Well, God's working on that because that's what chapter 6 and 7 are about. How once a person truly puts their faith in Christ, you say, how's a person declared righteous? 
in God's economy and in God's justice system because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. If we'll put our faith in what Jesus did, trust God's promises, God says we get his righteousness because he took our sin. There's a huge exchange that took place there. And God counts that in his courtroom. Jesus literally died for my sins. And God accepts that. Chapter 6 and 7, as I said, once that happens, God comes into our life in a unique way. It's called the Holy Spirit. He begins to change. I call the Holy Spirit the indispensable element of the Christian life. You can't live the Christian life, but the Holy Spirit in you will cause you to live the Christian life. You will be changing for the rest of your days on earth. Chapter 8 is all about how we are totally secure. We literally cannot lose. Say, Jeff, you believe in that eternal security? You believe in that once saved, always saved? I believe the Bible, and for that reason, absolutely, 100%. Once a person has eternal life, they can never, ever lose it, no matter what they do, because God is the one who keeps us saved. And then we hit chapters 9, 10, and 11. What's going on here? So here's our repeat. Chapters 9, 10, and 11... A lot of people skip because they end with chapter 8. We have all this security. We're sinners. God did everything to save us. He saves us. He starts working in our life. We're totally secure. Nothing can ever take us from the love of God. You think that would flow perfectly right into chapter 12 where Paul in chapter 12 verse 1 is going to say, Now live for the Lord. Give your bodies for the Lord as a living sacrifice. Don't just say, I would die for God. Will you live for God? It really would flow perfectly. Here's the only thing. Paul takes three chapters to deal with something. And I hope no one here this morning thinks, this is not important, Jeff. It's, it's a Jewish thing. I don't really need that. Please don't cast these chapters off as unimportant. Here's why. God's reputation is at stake. Is he an honest God? Is he truthful or not? So if you come week after week and you say, Jeff, you're answering all the questions I never ask. Paul, you're really answering some great questions. They're just not mine. I don't care. If you become a Bible reader and a thinker, then you should realize, so we Christians get this eternal life. We're eternally secure because God says we're saved. (laughs) Wonderful. Big problem, God. Didn't in the Old Testament, didn't you tell the Jews that they were your special people and that you were going to send them this Messiah? And when he comes, they're supposed to be blessed and moved to the front of the nations. Well, hasn't Jesus come? And they're not believing in him. And they're surely not being blessed. They're still being persecuted. So apparently your promises are not very good. That's why we've got to look at Romans 9, 10, and 11. We can't just skip them. Because a thinking person sees some real issues. Wait a minute. Are we secure? Are we really secure? Uh, There are these promises. And God said these promises to Abraham's descendants. Maybe we're not sure. Maybe just God throws out these promises and he doesn't keep them. If you want to write this down, if you're taking notes, here's your first note. A lot of things are going on that Paul's going to address in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Here's one of them. When Paul wrote the book of Romans around the mid-50s A.D., not 1950s. Some of you think, that's a long time ago. Some of you are like, no, that was just the other day. Uh, This is the 50s. This is the first century A.D. You say, what in the world is going on? When Paul wrote Romans, there were growing Jewish concerns, please understand, over what had been, I've used the word, predominantly Jewish church. 
But it's becoming more and more Gentile. And so the Jews are wondering, what is going on? In fact, if you really look at Acts chapter 2, it wouldn't even be predominantly Jewish church. It would be only a Jewish church. I've got to do this in about 60 seconds. You ready? The church starts when, after Jesus has paid for our sins, he dies on the cross, he really does die. He resurrects, he spends time 40 days re-encouraging and and getting with his disciples, but then he ascends back to heaven and he says, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. I'm going back, but I'm going to come again in my Holy Spirit. Ten days later, after he ascends, the Holy Spirit comes, and the church is born, but it's only in Jerusalem. Literally for years, only Jews are Christians. I'm not talking about Judaism. This is a new thing. Jews that realize their Messiah has come. They put their faith in Jesus. He really is the Messiah. But the problem is, all of a sudden, persecution eventually comes. And these, these, these Jewish Christians start spreading and leaving Jerusalem. And as they do, they start taking the gospel with them. And they start telling people. Now, they have a real quandary inside. What if someone's not a Jew? Do I need to tell them to become Jewish like us and then put their faith in the Messiah? Or can they just skip the whole Jewish phase and go straight to believing? I wonder if Jesus would save non-Jews. Well, that question's quickly answered as God brings in us Gentiles into the fold. You see the title of today's sermon, The Inclusion of Gentiles Among God's People. So we have this dilemma. God says the Jews are going to be blessed. When the Messiah comes, Jesus has come, the Jews apparently are not blessed and they're rejecting the Messiah, so apparently something is off on God's promises. Either God's promises are not true or Jesus isn't really the Messiah. It has to be one or the other. And as we've said for weeks now, Paul says actually there is a third option that is true. I'm not going to repeat the whole chapter, but everything in chapters 9, 10, 11 spring from 9 verse 6. Would you look at it? It'll either be in your Bible as you have it open or you'll notice it on the screen. Look at Romans 9, verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Well, it sure seems like it, Paul. It has not. God's promises are still true. Yes, Jesus is still the Messiah. Everything's right on schedule. How? What about all these promises about the Jews in the Old Testament? Verse 6 again. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Then what's the answer? For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. We've been saying over and over, there's these two Israels. There's these physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. There's these physical descendants, but not all of them are in on the promise. Verse 7, not all, Paul says the answer to the dilemma is, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So not every physical descendant of Abraham is going to get in on the promises of eternal life. Not all of them get there. And then he spends three chapters explaining. Last week, frankly, was the toughest. If you're here on December 3rd and you're like, boy, I was here when you talked about these twin boys and they hadn't done good or evil before they're even born. God's already made a decision. Jacob I love, Esau I hate. And the older one, Esau, is going to serve the younger one because the younger one's going to get the real blessing, the eternal blessing, and the other one isn't. And we hear that and go, God can't do that. God, you can't just arbitrarily make decisions like that. And then it got even harder last week as we looked at multiple things. So what I want to do, our text today is really verses 24 to 33, but I want to back up to verse 18 to get a running start. So here we go. And again, you'll tell that we're jumping right in the middle of an argument 
And I cannot repreach. It's online if you want to go hear last week's message. Uh, it is difficult to understand, but I honestly feel that we gave an accurate presentation. Verse 18. The first word says, while wow, we're jumping in the middle of an argument. So then. Here's Paul's conclusion. He draws many, but here's one of the many conclusions. M-I-N-I, not M-A-N-Y. He draws a lot of conclusions, but here's one of his many ones. It's hard for y'all to tell which word I'm using there because I'm from Western North Carolina. I have to spell these words for you. Pen, pen. I say P-I-N and P-E in the same way. Forgive me. You just got to put it in context. Anyway, I got to move on. Verse 18. So then, here's what God's word says. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills. So if you want to go back and study this passage before that, what God says back in verse 15, Moses, I have mercy on whomever I want to, and I am gracious and compassionate to whoever I want to be. No, no, God, you have to be merciful to everybody. You have to give grace to everybody. Listen carefully, guys. If God owes us grace and owes us mercy, it is not grace. It's a debt that he's paying. It's an obligation. But here's the thing. If no one, no humanity ever deserved to go to heaven, none of them deserve. We all deserve to go to hell. And God shows mercy and mercy and mercy. That's his free prerogative. That's what we talked about. There's a lot of struggle with verse 18a. You want to know where the real struggle? 18b. Because of that word and, and means B is equal to A. And I confess to you, I don't necessarily like this. I don't understand it fully. So then, verse 18, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And he literally had just used Pharaoh as an example. God, this guy thinks he's doing it on his own. God raises up Pharaoh literally so he can show his power on him so God's name becomes famous. And we hear that and go, come on, God, you, that's surely not what it means. But look at verse 19. Paul's like, I know what you're thinking. I'm already ahead of you. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? If he just raised up Pharaoh so he could show his power in him, on him, so his name would be famous, then why does God still find fault with Pharaoh or people like Pharaoh? I'm inserting that. Who can resist his will? Wasn't Pharaoh literally just doing the very thing? Paul, what's your answer? Paul does not give a satisfactory answer to us. He just puts us in our place. Here's the answer. Who are you? So if you're thinking that, just like I think that, when I read verses 6 through 18... If you're just like me, having those exact thoughts, let Paul put us in our place. Here it is. Who are you, old man? You're just a little man. Who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Who can do that? And if that wasn't clear, verse 21, Paul says, Has the potter no right Over the clay? He's the potter. Does he have the rights over the clay? To make out of the same lump. Same lump. It's not that one part of the lump, boy, these are good, and these over here are bad. There's no difference between Jacob and Esau. Doesn't the potter have the right to make out of the same lump one vessel? He's using the word vessel to point out for people. 
Can he make one lump out of the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable? Does the potter not have the ability to make that call? Yes, he does. Quickly, verse 22. What if God? This isn't a like just suppose, what if, let's think about it. It's you need to be open to the consideration because this is the way it is, verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power. They say God's a wrathful God and he hates sin. What is sin? I don't know, but they say he really doesn't like So God allows sin. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath? Again, vessels points to people. Prepared vessels of wrath. Prepared for destruction. God could have wiped out Pharaoh immediately, but he's enduring him. He's watching him beat down his own people. He's enslaving his people, mistreating his people. And God just holds back and holds back until eventually he doesn't hold back anymore. Because what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? There's one group. Verse 23 is the other. In order to make known the riches of his grace for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand, he prepared beforehand, For glory, these vessels of mercy, which he prepared for glory beforehand. Who are they? Paul says in verse 24, even us. So Paul's a Jew, but he's going to put himself in a category that he's even more fond to be part of. And that's even us, whom he has called. You say, Jeff, how do I know if I'm part of the us? Real quick question. Have you ever been called? Has God ever called, summoned, drew, drawn? As the word we saw last week, the Bible word, dragged you. Literally against your will. Have you ever been dragged? God dragged me, drew me as a nine-year-old boy. He really powerfully, he broke me down Monday, broke me down Tuesday, and then on a Wednesday, he dragged me to him. And I went. Verse 24 again, even us whom he has called, watch this, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea. We're going to have two quotes from Hosea. This is an Old Testament prophet. What does Hosea say? Because Paul says it's not just from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, God says this. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And then another quote, verse 26. And in in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. I believe verse 27 takes a little shift. And, Paul says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number, here's what the Bible says in Isaiah, God says, though the num- here's their testimony. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And, he adds another text. As Isaiah predicted, here's here's what they noticed. If the Lord of hosts, talking about the nation of Israel, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, if he had not left us a seed, 
If he had not left us just a few, what would have happened? We would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. It doesn't mean they would have become Sodomites. It means they would have been wiped out completely if God hadn't made a decision to leave a remnant in the previous passage and a seed, an offspring, just a little, a few of us. We would have been like them. Verse 30, shifts gears again. What shall we say then? This is an amazing two or three verses. This is an amazing passage. So clear. I've never thought of it like this. Paul says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they, the Israelites, the Jews, they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling. You say, what in the world is this analogy? What is a stone of stumbling? Everybody look this way real quickly. Jesus refers to this, and he refers to himself as the stone which the builders rejected. So there's this Old Testament analogy. There's this stone, and these, this building is being built, and it's the building of God. And the builders represent the Jewish leadership, the rulers, the authorities. They're religious leaders too, political, religious, all of them. So they're kind of looking at the stones to be used in building up the house of God. But they come across this one stone. They literally say, there's no use in our building for that stone. That stone will never work. They cast that stone aside. But in God's plan, literally the stone that they threw aside is the key one. It's the foundation stone, the very cornerstone. Everything is tied back to it. That's the most important one. The one they said, oh, there's no, that won't fit in our scheme. Throw that one away. Verse 33. As it is written, by the way, that stone is Christ. Jesus says, I'm the stone that the fancy builders over there threw aside, but God's determined that the house of God's going to all tie back to me. They missed the main thing. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Three things. Number one, would you write this down? God predicted Gentile inclusion into the church. God predicted Gentile inclusion into the church. We just read verses 23 to 26. If you were here last week, can I ask you a quick question? Don't answer out loud. Do you guys remember how repulsive the passage was to you? Do you remember how the opposite it was to your way of thinking? God raises up this person so he can show his power, so he becomes famous at Pharaoh's expense. God can have mercy on whoever he wants to. But he doesn't have to have mercy on everyone. God, you can't do that. That goes against the grain of our thinking. Can I say this to you? The Jews would not struggle with that. Paul's Jewish readers would look at that and say, there's absolutely no problem. You know what they would tell us? God has every right, Gentiles. He has every right to pick us Jews and just leave you off to the side. He doesn't owe you anything. They would have no struggle with that. We're choking on it. Now listen, here's what they choke on. When the script is flipped... And God says, I'm actually going to bring the Gentiles in. And if I want to show mercy to them, then they back up and say, well, no, what God, you can't show mercy to the Gentiles. 
Your free prerogative is to bring us in and show us mercy. But God, you can't have free prerogative to bring them in. They're dogs. They're Gentile dogs, God. They don't even pursue you. They don't know you. You have to only, and God says, I'm God. I do what I want. And they really struggle with this. Part of the struggle is for this, if you want to write it down. Scripture was given to us in what's called progressive revelation. You say, what's progressive? That means it literally came to us over 1,500-year period. We didn't have the whole thing at once. I'm not being mean. I'm just being honest. If you have a basic understanding of the Bible, you guys know more about God and his dealings and his plan than Abraham knew. You have more truth. You have clearer truth about God than Abraham had. You had more and clearer truth about God than even David had, than even Moses there. If you have a basic, decent understanding of the Scripture, you're ahead of them. And so we come to the New Testament where the last of the revelations being written and the Apostle Paul, this is so key, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and we find him several times in his writings referring to these things called mysteries, but he, as the Apostle of God, is inspired to clarify what the mysteries are. So here's what I'm going to say. Please get this. I'm going to throw four things up on the screen. You're going to fill them in and you're going to say, Jeff, dude, those are not mysteries. I know that. I'm a fairly new Christian. I've been saved three or four years. I already know at least three or four of those things. Three out of four. But in Paul's day, they were hidden. They were still hidden. You say, what are they? There's the mystery of godliness in Christ Jesus. Look at 1 Timothy. Look what the Bible says in 1 Timothy. This is a total mystery to them. Paul says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So how in the world did the Jews miss this whole thing about us coming in? Well, it was a mystery to them. It wasn't clear to them. Their eyes weren't open to see Gentiles coming in. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. What is it? He's talking about God, the church of the living God. He, God, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and then taken up into glory. Paul says this mystery... He says, I know about it. It was really hidden till now. You mean God becomes flesh, God himself? Right, Jesus is the Son of God, a Son of God. No, he's the Son of God. God the Son, God became flesh. It's a mystery and it was hidden for a long, long time. Paul expounds it. Guys, literally, it took the early church hundreds of years to know what you know. If you're sitting there right now and say, I'm not a theologian, but I know that Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and thus God the Son. If you know that and what that means, you are way ahead of what people in 200 A.D. knew. They had to plow through this. Here's another one. The mystery of, the, of marriage. The mystery. There's a mystery of marriage and its true meaning. Look at what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Paul says this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I'm not going into it. Literally, can I tell you something? Christians, our marriages are pictures of Christ's relationship with the church. Where literally, we get to become part of His body. We become one. It's a permanent relationship with Christ. And our marriages are supposed to be a picture of that. Here's another one. By the way, I'm going to use the word. It's not in the Bible. But it's a definitely a Bible concept. There's the mystery of the rapture. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 51. Paul does this over and over. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. In other words, God's shown me things he's not really shown people before. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Sleep there means we're not all going to die. Really? 
Not everybody, but Paul died, and all the people in the day that read that, literally in his day, they all died. But there's going to be a generation of Christians that this verse fits. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Listen, they don't know this yet. Let me let you in on it. Jesus alluded to it in John 14. I'm going to tell the Thessalonians a little bit more about it. But let me let you in on a little secret. We, Christians, shall not all sleep, die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and it will happen at the last trump. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. So their soul and spirits with the Lord, and their bodies down here. But this is what's going to happen. There's going to be this trumpet, and their dead bodies coming out of the ground, and they're going to be reunited. And what's going to happen? The trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For, here's why, this, this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. We call that the rapture now one more in Ephesians there's the mystery of Gentile inclusion if you would look at Ephesians chapter 3 verse number 4 it's what Paul's alluding to in Romans 9 he tells the Ephesians when you read this you can perceive my insight he's not bragging he's just being factual when you read this you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ what's the mystery which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles... Guys, this is why the, the, the Jews totally missed it. Didn't see it. It was alluded to, but their eyes were closed. Verse 6. This mystery, Paul says, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Back to Romans 9. Why does Paul point these things out? If you would look at verse 25. I'm going to ask you a quick question. As you read this, who do you think of? Is this Jews or is this Gentiles? Here it comes. Let's read verse 25 and 26. Is this Jews or Gentiles? The Bible says, as indeed, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was... Not beloved, I will call beloved. And the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Who is that? Guys, there's a big debate. Listen to me, there's an understandable debate. This is going to be the trickiest part. Some of you may be like, I don't get that. That's minutia, I'm turning that out, tuning it out. Others of you be like, what? There really is a big debate. One of my favorite people, I will quote him twice today, takes a different stance than I do. Here's stance number one. Verses 25 and 26 are totally Jewish. It is only talking about the Jewish nation. You say, why? Watch. If you were to go back to Hosea, you would find Hosea's context is a Jewish context. Here's the situation. God, Jehovah God, marries the nation of Israel, says, you will be my special people. I'll be your God. They say, yes, okay, great. We're all in. Let's do it. God is always faithful to them, but they keep cheating on God. And so to illustrate his point, literally the book of Hosea is not only a prophecy, it's a, it's a picture. It's a man's life bearing out what Israel's doing to God. He says, Hosea, my prophet, not only am I going to give you the word of God, here's what I want you to do. I want you to marry a woman, and she's going to be an adulterous whoremonger. She's going to be a harlot. So you go marry her. And then you will have children. Now the debate, another debate is, was she already a harlot or did she become a harlot after marrying Hosea? And so Hosea goes out and he obeys God and he marries Gomer. And when I use that text in 
premarital counseling, I always say right there, God, you just lost me. I can maybe obey you on that. I'm not marrying a woman named Gomer. I am not doing it. (laughs) Now, if your aunt is named Gomer, I am really, really sorry. Or your grandmother, or if you're your mother's middle name, I am sorry. But right there, God and I have to have a talk. But Hosea is like, he marries Gomer. Sure enough, they have a child and another and another. I can't go into it all, but literally the names of the kids reveal what this text says. Israel's being put away. Israel's been God's people, but they've been unfaithful to him. They're cheating on God, spiritual adultery, with the Baals and the Ashtoreths and Chemosh and all of these. And they're serving them and living in idolatry, just forsaking God. And God's like, you've just left me. And so there's this huge distance and separation between God and the nation of Israel. And the names of the kids literally are bore out. So watch this. You're sitting there. You should be thinking, if you have your outline, you should be thinking, all right, Jeff, if the context is... Hosea marries Gomer, and his life's a picture of God with Israel. Then doesn't the text refer to bringing them back? Yes, Israel will be brought back. So you should be sitting there saying, then Jeff, why are you applying this in our outline, saying it's talking about Gentiles becoming God's people, when the text itself, the context, the true interpretation is it's a Jewish interpretation. Why are you doing this? I want to give you three quick reasons. Look at verse number 24. I'm only doing this because I believe Paul does this. Verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. I believe his emphasis here, it's also the Gentiles. Verse 25. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people. You say, but Jeff, the context of Hosea is the nation of Israel became like they were not God's people. And they were not beloved. And he says, I'm going to call them my people. I'm going to call them back. There's going to be this restoration. And Jeff, that's what we see today. The Old Testament is exactly true. The Jews are away from the Lord, but the day's coming when they will be brought back to the Lord. Verse 26 does the same thing. So Jeff, why do you do? Because I believe Paul says in verse 25, as indeed he says in Hosea, he's using this passage. Paul says, I can prove the idea of the, the Gentiles being brought in by using the Hosea passage. Second reason, look at verse 27. I know I did this with my voice inflection. I hope I'm not harming the text. I believe what it says here. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Watch. Hosea can be applied, that's a key word, applied to the Gentiles. And Isaiah talks about Israel's rejection. So it's like Paul uses Hosea to prove the point about the Gentiles. He uses this section in Isaiah to prove his point about the Jews. So I believe verse 27 joins verse 24 in showing us what Paul's doing. And the other kicker is that Peter in 1 Peter does the same thing. It's like Peter applies this to Gentile usage. Listen carefully. I'm going to stop stop that first point. We're going to move on. Here's the last thing I'm going to say. If this were a preacher boy's class, and you guys were young preachers, and I've never really taught a preacher boy's class, but I would tell them, guys... Paul does something here. He reads the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. He reads it. He knows the context is a Jewish interpretation. But because Paul, as he writes the New Testament, is inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul, as the apostle, takes that and applies it to us being brought in. Here's what I would tell young preacher boys. Paul can do that, and we can preach it because Paul does that, but you and I can never do that. Grace, if you listen, you can't just read the Old Testament and pick a passage you like and say, I'm going to claim that if the passage is actually talking about somebody else. Be sure your interpretation fits. 
Paul takes some liberties. And the only reason I'm saying, because Paul did. So what's my conclusion as we move on? Here's what God says. Here's what's going to happen. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people. This sounds like Gentiles, and it does apply to the Jews. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Number two. This will be the shorter, much shorter point. Ready? God foresaw Israel's rejection of Christ. Not only did God predict the inclusion of the Gentiles, God foresaw Israel's rejection of Christ. Look at verse 27, 28, 29. There's two quotes from Isaiah. We'll read it quickly. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Here's what the Bible says. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, millions and millions and millions, literally hundreds of millions, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, here's what God says, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, now he backs up to chapter 1 of Isaiah, and here's what God says. Is what they conclude. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, in other words, if he hadn't called off the dogs, if the Lord hadn't spared us, what would have happened to us? We would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah and become like Gomorrah. We would have been completely wiped out. There literally would be no nation of Israel if God hadn't made a decision. So, Jeff, what's happening here? Paul's main point in verse 27, 28, 29 is how I started. Guys, listen, God's promise to the Jews is right on schedule because not every descendant of Abraham was included in the promise and God has always had a remnant. There was this thing called the Assyrian conquering of the nation of Israel. The Assyrians, you've ever heard of Nineveh? you heard of Jonah and he gets in the well and he comes out. Well, he's a prophet for the nation of Israel and he's a prophet that goes to the Assyrians and tells them you better get right with God or God's going to punish you and they actually repent but God used the Assyrians to conquer the nation of Israel but you know what God did he had a remnant that he spared later on the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians and then the Babylonians conquered the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and again God saved and spared a remnant of Judah AD 70 I looked it up just a few minutes on my little smartphone Wikipedia or whatever it is A.D. 70, the Romans come in, they get sick and tired of the Jews, and they wipe out the city of Jerusalem, killing 1.1 million people, most of whom were Jews, but some fled and got away. And others were killed, and a few were sent into slavery. God saved and spared a remnant. Listen to me. The time is coming, I believe, in the near future, when we're going to enter what's called the tribulation period, and the Antichrist will get control and sway over all the armies of the world, and they will turn all their power against the nation of Israel, and Israel will be bottled up, and they will be persecuted, and they will die. But God will save a remnant, and that remnant, according to the book of Zechariah, in that day will look on him whom they pierced as Jesus comes back in the second coming, literally touches down. They look on him, and they realize, we've been wrong the whole time. We did that to you. Yes, you did. And they will run to him, and a remnant will be saved. Here's the point. All along, God's made a determination. It was never going to be all of the Jews that trusted him. It was going to be a remnant. The Jewish rejection of Christ is not a surprise to God. He literally said, Hosea, go marry this harlot wife, this adulterous wife, because I've married a bride that I know is going to cheat on me and forsake me, but there will be a remnant that come to me. Two things. God predicted the Gentiles coming in. God foresaw the Rejection by the Jews, and that brings us to our third point. Righteousness 
a lot of ways we could have gone with this. I hope I don't regret taking this approach. It's kind of the main thought I want to get across to you. Righteousness is not pursuing law. Righteousness is not pursuing law. Would everybody listen to what I'm about to say? You have to have righteousness to go to heaven. You have to have righteousness to go to heaven. I'm asking you right now, do you have the righteousness required to go to heaven? Answer that in your mind. You must be righteous. You cannot have sin to go to heaven. You must be righteous. Do you have righteousness required to go to heaven? Watch what the Bible says. Guys, I'm going to tell you, this is a striking passage to me. Just, it's so big picture, I never would have thought of it this way, but this is exactly what has happened. Paul reads that passage and he says, what shall we say then? What's our conclusion? Let's draw some conclusions. Do do y'all see this? Listen to this. Here's this conclusion. Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Guys, this is so twisted to me, but this is so accurate. Watch this. The Jews, it's ingrained in them from the time they're a child. They highly favor and prize God's blessing and God's favor. They, they want to be right with Him. And then there's these Gentiles who really don't give a flip about God. They don't care about righteousness. And over here is these Jews trying to be righteous. We want your favor, God. They're doing everything they can to get it. And here's over here's this group, Gentiles, they don't care. What ends up happening? The group that doesn't even pursue it, they end up getting it. And this group over here does not get it despite all their efforts because they're going about it the wrong way. And these end up, end up having it thrust upon them and they end up receiving it. See verse 30. What should we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness... John R.W. Stott writes the following. Please hear this. To describe pagans, that's us. That's our roots. You say, no, my mama and my grandma and my great-grandma. Listen, you keep tracking it back, and I'm going to tell you what you're going to find. Pagan Gentiles who at our best, this is our best, Stott says, to describe pagans as not pursuing righteousness. They weren't pursuing. He said, that's a major understatement. Most of them are at least... Godless. He ain't even saying how wicked. He's saying most of them are at least godless and self-centered. Listen, does this sound like the United States? They're at least godless and self-centered, going their own way. Lovers of themselves, of money and pleasure, rather than lovers of God and goodness, nevertheless, they obtained what they did not pursue. I think that sounds like the world I live in. Here's people just living life. It's literally all they care about. Hey, I feel good. Am I moving up the ladder? Am I getting a raise? Is my family healthy? Yeah, family's healthy. Good. Is my retirement on track? Okay, retirement's on track. Are the cars running well? Is the house in good shape? Are our vacations lined up? Everything's structured there? All the family's healthy? Are we getting along? Is my team winning? That's all we care about. What are we doing Friday? That's just us, man. We're just living life. What am I doing Friday? When are we going on vacation again? Do we have enough money? 
can we get that thing we've been wanting? Can we go there? That's, we're consumed with that. That's our best. We're not going... Guys, as a nine-year-old kid who went to a Bible camp, I'm thinking back. I literally thought back and it, 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 I concluded. It dawned on me. I wasn't pursuing righteousness. I wasn't pursuing God. I don't even know why I went. I'm not the kind of kid that would just, hey, I want to go to camp. My uncle, who was a pastor, calls my mom and dad. They end up working it out. I'm not pursuing righteousness, but God's pursuing me behind the scenes. But I leave camp with righteousness. You're like, How did you leave camp with righteousness? By faith. I wrote this down yesterday. Picture this. Is this frustrating to you? Watch this. There's a position open. Positions. Watch. There's a line of people who come from legendary stock in the field. They've taken all the classes and they've got all the certifications. They've filled out all the forms. They've prepared their resume. They've practiced their interview skills. Got it? They've chosen the just right outfit and they've pressed it just so. And they've stood in line all day long. And they get passed over. For who? Some Johnny-come-latelys who have no pedigree, no training, no experience, no expertise, who aren't even looking for a position. They get the position. And you're standing in that line. Sit up straight, sit up straight, answer all questions. Blah, blah, blah. The professor told me to do this. Got it, got my paperwork. Be sure I drop mom and dad's name and my granddad. Got it, okay, surely this is going to work. What? I, I don't even get an interview. What are you talking about? Now, they, they're filling the positions. You can't do that. Paul says that's exactly what's happening. And it blows my mind. Verse 30 again, look at the end. They end up attaining righteousness. That is, it's a righteousness that's by faith. Listen carefully. Righteousness is only by faith. Righteousness is only by faith. The text doesn't tell us who the faith is in. You say, hey Jeff, I have faith. I believe the sky is blue. Great. No, I really do believe it. Jeff, I have faith. I believe two plus two is four. Wonderful. You're educated. You're right. That will not get you to heaven. You say, no, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Wonderful, that'll not get you to heaven. You say, I believe Jesus died on the cross. That'll not get you to heaven. Believing about, believing in, believing on is a whole different ballgame. Look at verse 33. So verse 30, does it, it just says it's by faith that we get this right. So verse 33 tells us who the faith is in. It alludes to it. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him... So you have to have faith in him. Who's him? We don't really see the answer until we get down to chapter 10. Look at the screen. Chapter 10, verse number 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So all these people are trying to get righteousness by the law. Christ is the end of the attempt of getting righteousness by the law to everyone who will just believe in him. Guys, righteousness only comes by faith, but faith is in an object, and the object is Jesus Christ. You only get saved by putting your faith in Jesus. You must do that. And that's how Gentiles who weren't even looking for salvation, weren't even worried about righteousness, they end up getting Jesus' righteousness while this other group of of people over here, the Jews, I'm not being mean. I'm just saying what Paul, who was a Jew himself, says. Look at verse 31. What shall we say then? But that Israel who pursued, 
They're going. Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. I, I think there's possibly two ways. Listen carefully. Dial in. Really dial in. Really focus. Right now is a great time to say, God, please let me get this. I believe the verse there could read, and maybe it's implied both ways. Let me insert. Watch this. But that Israel who pursued a law that they thought would lead to righteousness, but it didn't. They didn't succeed because they went about it the wrong way. Or does it say this? Verse 31. Israel who pursued, who pursued, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. I'll go and tell you, if they could have kept all the law, yeah, they'd be righteous. Problem is no one's ever kept all of God's laws. Listen. Israel arrogantly hunted laws. We meet on Sunday. They would meet every Saturday, and they'd open the books. They don't have a New Testament. They don't believe in the New Testament. They'd get the Old Testament out, and they're looking for the, oh, there's a new commandment. Ah, there's a new one. Oh, there's a rule. I got I gotta found a new rule here. Oh, here's another law. All right, be sure you go out and you do the laws and keep the rules and obey the commandments. They were diligent. Boy, they hunted them. They were pursuing the rules and the laws. Why? Because by keeping them, we're going to be righteous. Warren Wiersbe so right. Here's what he says. Please hear this. The Jews thought that the Gentiles had to come up to Israel's level to be saved. When actually, the Jews had to go down to the level of the Gentiles to be saved. There may be someone here this morning, you say, Jeff, that's not connecting with me, the Jew-Gentile thing, I don't really know any Jews. Watch this. There may be someone sitting here this morning, you're on your way to hell because you don't believe in Jesus, because here's what's making you stick. I know a Christian, or I know some Christians, or I've been watching this group of people here, and they appear to have it all together. And apparently the way to be saved, if I could just get up to their lofty level of moral living, then maybe God would save me. That'll send you to hell. Here's what you have to do. You have to go down to the foot of the cross and humble yourself and say, God, please save me. I can't try to get up to there. I sure can't get up to where I'm supposed to be, so I'm just going to come down to the foot of the cross. Listen, if they are a true Christian and you think you know them, believe me, they have baggage, but if they are a true Christian, they came down to the foot of the cross. We all do. Jews, you've got to come up here. And God says, no, you have to go down there and be saved like they do. It's by faith. It's like Paul's asking the Jews this. I could even ask him. This is so important. Why are you working so hard? No, really. Why are you working so hard keeping all those moral laws? Why are you working so hard paying those tithes? Why are you working so hard keeping all those ceremonial aspects? You say, Jeff, are you preaching against being moral, doing moral right things and offering tithes? Absolutely not. They're good things. The key was the word why. Watch. Are you doing that because you love God? If your honest answer is, I want to live that way because I love the Lord. I want to give that because I believe in what God is doing. I want to give to the Lord. I believe in that. I want to please Him. But the honest answer, what Paul is saying is, that is not their answer. The Jew is saying, I'll tell you why I'm doing these things. Because I'm earning righteousness. William Barclay words it this way. He says, fundamentally, the Jewish idea was that a man, by strict obedience to the law, could in the end pile up a credit balance. And when he had acquired this credit balance, the result was that God was in his debt. God owed him salvation. That's their mindset. 
I did that and that and that. God, you're watching. I'm almost there. That and that and that. Oh, I'm about to die. I did it, right? And no. Would you for a moment put yourself in the shoes of the Jew? A Jew. I mean a devout Jew. From Paul's day comes and sits in here and he can speak English somehow, right? Do you know how offensive and ridiculous what I'm standing up here saying? I thought this. The Christian message is extremely frustrating for Jews to hear that we simply trust fall. Y'all know what trust fall. I'm not going to do it because there's nobody here. My son did it a year ago. Trust, he trust falling right off the stage. And some guys caught him. This is so frustrating to the Jews. We have a message. Just trust fall into the capable, loving arms of God. Come on, I got you. I'll save you, I promise. You just got to do the nasty plunge. If you're under 30, you have no idea what that means. Everybody else about like, you just do the nasty plunge right here. I got you. I promise I'll catch you. I got you. And the Jews are over there going, have you lost your mind? Do you know what we're doing? Here's what they're doing. They're running the equivalent of like through the hottest spiritual deserts, climbing the highest, steepest spiritual mountains, swimming the widest, deepest, coldest spiritual oceans to get righteousness. And the thing is, they end up with nothing. And the people who just relax and fall into God end up going to heaven. And so if you've missed it up till now, let me be very, very clear. You say, Jeff, what about last week's passage? Listen, let me be very clear. The reason the majority of physical descendants of Abraham, the Jewish nation, for the last 2,000 years has not gone to heaven, and the majority of them, I'm not being mean, I'm being accurate, the majority of Jews alive today are on their way to hell. Here's the reason. They do not believe in Jesus. That's the reason. You say, Jeff, last week you were so clear and so, you were so passionate Yes, you admitted you weren't understanding of it all and you weren't crazy about it all, but it's God's election. God's free prerogative to choose. And no one gets saved without that. I understand that. I totally preached that. I went all in. If you were here last week, we went all in. We didn't hold back. But I'm here to tell you this morning... If somebody, and as a church, all we do is take God's sovereignty at the exclusion of man's responsibility to have faith in Christ, it will always be perversion. You cannot say we're only going to focus on this. God's determined. And God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. I know some people that believe that to such a degree they don't ever tell anybody. They don't plead with anybody to come to Christ. They never share their faith. And then I know others that are so opposed to that they think everybody's faith in the whole community is riding on their effort. And they're out there killing themselves like I can bring them. I can make them. I can trick them. I can word it just right. I can pressure them. You believe in Jesus? Yeah, you've heard about that. You know you're a sinner, right? You don't want to go to hell, do you? No. Well, pray with me. All right, say this prayer. Why? Because they're too far the other way. That sounds silly, but it's true. There really are books written back in the 70s that would talk about how you put your hand on somebody's shoulder and put a little pressure and bring them down into a prayer. Like, what? That does not go with Romans 9, I know. Has to be a balance. Here's the balance. God must draw. And man must believe. Will it work? Somebody here this morning, here's what your thought is. Somebody listening to me, maybe on a recording, here's what your thought is. You ready? 
The main thing holding me back from becoming a Christian, the main thing keeping me from being saved is my sin. Sin is not the greatest obstacle to being saved. You say, I believe it is. Sin was taken care of by by Christ on the cross. Sin is not your greatest obstacle. Most people's greatest obstacle is in this text. You say, what is it? MacArthur says it's self-righteousness. Self-righteousness says, I don't really need Jesus down on the cross for me. I've been doing all these things over here. I have this religious pedigree. This will get me through. Self-righteousness will cause you to go to hell. That's why we, when we talk to people about their faith, the first thing, we must get them lost. Jesus words it this way. They that are whole, well, don't need a physician. He says, I've come to save the sick. So if you see yourself ever as I am so sick and black and sinful... You are a candidate for salvation. If you sit here and say, I'm a good person. I don't need what y'all all need. You have no chance. Very quickly, the end of verse 32, verse 33. Paul says, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul is saying the Jews were so, watch this, so busy looking for rules and laws So they could try to keep them and impress God and earn his favor. And God, you owe me if I do all these things, right? So I'm going to really study and I'm going to do it. The problem is they can never keep all of God's laws. But here's the thing. While they're digging and looking for rules and laws and commandments, they totally miss all the evidence that Jesus of Nazareth is their Messiah. They miss all of that because they're looking for the rules. Why? Because man, it's in you, we love rules. We love to earn our way to heaven. That's all right, God, I want to earn my way. I want to have a place in heaven, but I want to earn myself there. Every man-made religion has works involved in it. Write this down. As Israel's chasing righteousness by works, they stumble over the one true way to heaven, and that's Christ. It's not that he's small, It's literally they're going about righteousness and stumble right over Christ. Because the Jew in Paul's day, here's how they honestly thought. It can't. And this might be somebody here this morning. If this is you, you are stumbling over the stumbling stone. It's right there in front of you. Jesus is the Savior. He's the only way to heaven. But if you sit there and go, it can't be that simple. There has to be something I do. Please, Jeff, tell me what I need to do. I've been telling you. You have to do nothing except trust fall. You have to hear the promise of God, fall into the loving, capable arms of God, and receive his salvation. Let Jesus do all the work. If you try to help, you mess the whole thing up. You will not go to heaven. So here's my conclusion. I want to make two points. Here's the first. This is for Christians. Please listen. Please listen. Truth precedes faith taste that truth precedes faith today's text the first part of the text I preached on watch this God stands ready to call people his people who are not his people God listen this is important God says I'm ready to call them they're not my people I'm ready to call them my people even though they're not my people yet But for that to happen, they have to hear the truth because truth precedes faith. They have to hear and then they have to believe. You say, Jeff, that sounds great. Why are you telling that to us? Because a lot of people haven't heard. A lot of people. Now, let's make it personal to you. Two things. 
Have you shared your faith with anybody? You say, everybody I'm around, everybody's a Christian. I dare you to start asking them why. Start asking them the question I'm going to ask you in a moment. Just ask them. Say, Jeff, I'm not an expert at the Bible. You have heard enough to know the answer and to know when someone's in deep trouble. Start asking people, don't do this. Uh, You're good to go when you die? Oh, I'm ready. Okay. Everybody's ready. And Anderson, they'll tell you that. Ask them why, please. The second thought on that is this. God stands ready to call a group of people, his people that are not yet his people, but they first have to hear the truth, and then they have to believe, but there's many who haven't heard. You knew I was going there. Have you given? I think our Lottie Moon offering is somewhere around $8,700, $8,800. Last year it was over $10,000. It may be God's will that we do less than we did last year. It may be. Maybe. I'm not saying that. I'm just throwing it out. Is it God's will that you say, well, Jeff, December's over. She hadn't written the checks yet. You have time. If you're sitting there and saying, there's a group of people. God's ready to call his people. But they have to hear. And boy, somebody ought to tell them. I know. Have you been part of that process? If you're sitting here saying, I've not been part of that process at all. I've been turning my tithes. I've given toward the renovation. Have you given toward the Lottie Moon offering? If you haven't, that's our offering that goes once a year, a big thrust toward international missions toward those who've not heard. Last thing. I have to ask you a most important question. You say, Jeff, really? Every preacher finishes this way. Don't turn me off. Nobody. My family sitting in here, needs to answer this. Our elders sitting in here needs to answer this. Their wives, our deacons, their wives, every person who's a teacher in a class, everybody here this morning, everyone needs to answer this question. So simple. I'm going to ask it to you. You need to ask it to other people. Answer within yourself. Be honest. What are you trusting to go to heaven? Don't think about anybody beside you. Please don't sit there and say, well, I hope they're, hope they're getting it. I'm talking to you. What are you trusting to go to heaven? This is important. Listen. Today's text is clear. Listen. You can have all of the religious pedigree. Say, Jeff, my mom, my dad, my uncle, my grandma, grandpa. You can have all the religious pedigree. Check them off. This will fit many. You can have the highest percentage of church attendance. You can read the most scripture. You can give the most to the church or the most percentage of your income. You can have the greatest sacrifice of giving. You may have the longest running membership. You may lead the most ministries. Like, man, if that person really, what if one person was really all of that? You can have all of that. I want you to hear this. This is important. You can have all of that, but if you do not have faith, you will be passed over at the finish line by who? Listen to the description. You can have all of that. You will be passed over at the finish line by someone who lived selfishly and wallowed in sin all their life until at the end of their life they were confronted by Jesus and they believed in Jesus. And you're literally going to be passed right over. They will spend eternity in heaven and you will spend eternity in hell if that's all you have are those nice little accomplishments. They're going to heaven. And I know that God, look, I've been doing this for decades. They're not getting in on a deathbed. You cannot. Did you see how they look? Selfish, sinful, awful. Paul says, 
a group of people who aren't even looking for it end up getting confronted with Christ and they just yield to it. And over here's this group of people working and working and working to try and earn it. You'll not get it. They will. What are you trusting? The oft-used hymn says this. Say, what do I have to do to be saved? Here it is. It's a conversation with God. Here it is. Just as I am. Without one plea. Translation, God, this is me. I got nothing. I'm not even going to pretend. I got nothing. Just as I am. No plea. But, actually I do have two things. I got two things. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And, number two, that thou bidst me come to thee. I don't have anything, but I have two things. I don't have anything, but you shed your blood for me, and you bid me come to you. You calling me, O Lamb of God, I come. I come. You shed your blood. You calling me. I'll do the easy part. I'll come. Would you close your eyes? Would you close your eyes?